Wow. Well, it's great to be here with you, and it's good to know that uh, he's going to treat me like family because, uh, well, it's just good to know. I'm just going to leave it like that. Uh, <clears throat> wouldn't want it any other way. But it is a joy to be with you this morning and to especially to open the word on Resurrection Sunday. What a joy that is and what a delight. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the multicolored outlines. You could have your choice between pink and green. I, I thought that was at least my attempt at some uh, Easter colors or whatever. But uh, it is so uh, wonderful uh, to be celebrating the colors in this time of year with the, the spring. Uh, it's a wonderful time of year. If you're a sports fan, and there may be some of us here, uh, you have a culmination of the professional basketball and hockey uh, seasons, and you have the opening day or opening week of Major League Baseball when fans of virtually every team can dream that they will win the World Series this year, or in the case of my Baltimore Orioles, at least possibly make the playoffs. <clears throat> Actually, there is some hope for us uh, here where I uh, live a little closer to D.C. Most people are Nats fans, but I think we have a few more Orioles fans up this way. I'm hoping so anyway. Um, so... And nature, of course, is beginning to abound in wondrous color as the harsh winter weather gives way to warmer temperatures and the beautiful blooming flowers and cherry blossoms and all the rest. Well, for some uh, people, spring, uh, Easter is simply a celebration of spring, and many of these things, plus a proliferation of chocolate bunnies or eggs or some other types of candy, not that I would necessarily mind uh, some of those things. Uh, but for the Christian, Easter means one thing, with everything else secondary in importance. Easter is the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What I like so much about Easter is that it forces us to confront directly the issue of who Jesus really is. In a fairly recent book, The Jesus Survey, What Christian Teens Really Believe and Why, Mike Napa interviewed nearly a thousand teens across the country who called themselves Christians. And he found that only 34% strongly believed that Jesus was God, and 55% weren't sure. When asked whether Jesus rose from the dead physically after the crucifixion, only 60% strongly agreed, with the other 40% either unsure or disagreeing. Maybe you're here this morning and you, like some of the teens who took this survey, are not quite sure what to do with Jesus. Well, maybe you think that Jesus was a good man, but you aren't quite sure about all of the rest. But Easter forces us to confront the main questions about him. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead as he said he would? Or is it just a nice story to make us feel better? And if he did rise from the dead, what difference does it make? These are the questions that I want to deal with this morning. 
I believe that they are two of the most important questions you'll ever encounter as you go through life. First of all, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happen? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Yes, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact, not simply a nice story. And by the way, and I couldn't help uh, but uh, printing this out, an article from the Washington Post. You notice I forgot to change the paper from my green of the uh, bulletin, but I'm too frugal, I was going to say cheap, to print it out again. But uh, (laughs) so here we are, my green paper. But this was, I I just read this yesterday in the Washington Post, this uh, uh, professor of religion at LaGrange College, John Granger uh, Cook, talking about crucifixion. And when he says, when people are working with the historical Jesus, his crucifixion is the one fact that nobody ever doubts because it's so incredibly embarrassing, Cook said. So we know that much for sure. We know he lived and he was put to death. Well, congratulations for that. I mean, that is a positive that they uh, actually do know and understand that. That's wonderful, but (laughs) it's not just the crucifixion, but it's the resurrection that is a historical fact. Consider the following five pieces of evidence. First of all, we know that the tomb was sealed and guarded. Matthew 27, 62 to 64 reports that the chief priests and the Pharisees knew that Jesus said he would rise again after three days. So they were worried that his disciples might come and steal Jesus' body from the tomb. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The tomb was made secure by the stone, a special seal, and a guard of Roman soldiers. Mark 16, 2 tells us that the stone was so large that the three women who came to the tomb that first Easter Sunday to anoint Jesus' body wondered who would roll away the stone for them. So it was impossible for anyone to get into the tomb to steal Jesus' body, and it was impossible for Jesus to get out. Since he was clearly dead, and even if somehow he wasn't totally dead, how could he have removed the stone? Matthew 28, 2 tells us that it was an angel of the Lord who descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. When the guards told the chief priests what had happened, the chief priests bribed the soldiers to say that Jesus' disciples came at night and stole the body, Matthew 28, 11 to 15. But as we've already explained, this was impossible for them to have done, and no one ever presented Jesus' body in order to discredit the resurrection. Second, 
the Gospels contain four slightly different accounts of the resurrection. The Gospels contain four slightly different accounts of the resurrection. Some of the details might at first seem to contradict one another. For instance, some accounts mention one angel uh, and others mention two. But all of these details uh, can be resolved. I, by the way, have, um, I've got a sheet of paper that I, you know, I went through every event and sort of uh, tried to get it in chronological, uh, good chronological sequence. It, they can all be resolved. And the fact that they are, there are minor differences only shows that these were eyewitness accounts and not made up. If the gospel was simply a fraud, why wouldn't those who made up the story be careful not to have any apparent contradictions in their story, such as what we have in these accounts? In other words, if the stories were made up by the disciples, they would be exactly the same in all the details. Uh, but they aren't. They are eyewitness accounts or reported by eyewitnesses and written down in the Gospels. And the accounts are accurate in the details. Just as when my wife and I go to event, an event and we both report on it at the dinner table. Accurate, usually, but uh, two different perspectives. One mentioning a detail possibly left out by the other. Uh, in fact, if there's anything artistic or something like that, that's my wife's domain. And she may, maybe notices the, you know, I don't know, the wallpaper or something like that. Uh, I don't even know that there was any wallpaper. So at any rate, uh, but that's the way it works. And by the way, a book by Frank Morrison entitled Who Moved the Stone? Written, by the way, in 1930. This copy is not quite that old, 1930. In fact, I just laughed because I always put the price of the book when I bought it, 98 cents, not a bad deal. It says imperfect cover. That's my perfect bargain. Who cares whether the cover is imperfect? 98 cents, bought it in 1974. And uh, yeah, a little while ago. And he points out how, how uh, uh, Morrison initially tried to show that the gospel accounts of the resurrection were made up. Actually, I just reread this last night, just sort of for a refresher, and I found I didn't quite agree with a few comments, and I had some points in the margin where I disagreed with him. He says something about the, you know, the young man not being an angel. He's wrong. It was an angel, no question. But other than that, this is a great book uh, because he was trying to show that Jesus uh, life and death, he was trying to show that the resurrection didn't happen. Guess what? He ended up studying it so much that he ended up believing that the resurrection did happen, that they were true. Eyewitness accounts, genuine with no evidence of being made up. And by the way, in case you don't want to get an old copy like this, you can get this on Kindle for 99 cents. 99 cents. Now, I got it cheaper by a few cents, but uh, not by much. Anyway, 99 cents isn't bad. So if you haven't read it, you have no excuse. Uh, there's another book by J. Warner Wallace uh, uh, entitled Alive that recounts uh, how um, uh, this man, J. Warner Wallace, a cold case police detective who was an atheist, came to faith when he was 35 years old after, again, examining the evidence of the resurrection. 
Uh, I thought that was a great book, and it was available on Kindle for a mere $1.58. But last night I checked, and I can't find it anywhere. So you're going to have to spend a large amount, $9.50 on Kindle, for his Cold Case Christianity, which I guess it's a lot more, uh, uh, it, it covers more than his other book did, but it's Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the gospel. My point is, these, in both cases, you have one rather old, one much more recent, basically setting out to disprove the resurrection as they looked at it uh, in detail, they came to believe in the accounts of the resurrection. And part of it is because of these different accounts uh, that, were, that are given in the Gospels. Third, the disciples changed from frightened to bold. They changed from frightened to bold after the resurrection. At the cru- crucifixion, the disciples were a mess, right? They were a scared bunch. They all fled the scene, and Peter even denied that he knew the Lord. That's, by the way, another thing that I say in terms of the scriptures. If you say, well, you don't think the scriptures are true. Well, if they're made up, I'm telling you, remember, Peter's the hero. Acts 2, right? The great sermon at Pentecost. Well, what does he look like in the Gospels? He looks like a a whimpering fool. That's what he looks like, denying the Lord three times. And, and that, to me, is evidence that this is indeed the word of God. It does not hide the faults of even the great uh, disciples. When we see them together again that first Easter Sunday night, John 20, verse 19, says that all the doors were shut when the disciples were gathered for fear of the Jews. They were still a scared bunch before Jesus appeared to them all. What changed them from this scared bunch to boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Christ at Pentecost just 50 days later? As Acts 2 does tell us, Peter gives a sermon that was so strong that 3,000 people were saved. Now, I'm sure Pastor Rod could give that kind of a sermon, but we just need 3,000 here. And we don't quite have that yet. Um, Well, what changed Peter from a scared disciple who denied that he even knew Jesus to a bold apostle who proclaimed Jesus' death and resurrection openly? This can only be explained by the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Why would these men risk their lives for a lie or for a hoax? Fourth, Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures predicted both Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures predicted both Jesus' death and his resurrection. I could spend many, many Sundays on this particular topic. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection numerous times before it happened. I'll just read a few. Matthew 16, 21 it says, for from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Ju- Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. 
Matthew 17, 22 and 23. He says, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So it shouldn't have been a surprise. Same thing, by the way, in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. So it shouldn't have surprised the disciples because Jesus predicted it often. Not only his death, but his resurrection three days later. Similarly, the Old Testament scriptures predicted Jesus' death and resurrection 700 to 1400 years earlier. The feast prescribed in Leviticus 23 spoke of Passover, when a lamb was killed for the people's redemption. And then it speaks of first fruits three days later, Leviticus 23, verses 5 through 14. It's no accident that Jesus was crucified at Passover as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, as it says in John 1, 29. And he rose again three days later on the feast of first fruits. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 specifically predicts the Messiah's death for our sins and for his resurrection. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's all of us, isn't it? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the birth and death of Christ. This passage speaks so clearly to the, uh, Jesus that the Jewish readings in the synagogue, the, in their readings, the rabbis skip from Isaiah 52, 14 to 54, verse 1, bypassing Isaiah 53 entirely. And David, in Psalm 22, speaks of the suffering and death of the Messiah. He speaks of his hands and feet being pierced in Psalm 22:16, a clear reference to the crucifixion. And speaking of casting lots for his clothing in verse 18, which happened at the cross, as Matthew 27:35 describes. Jesus himself quotes from the first verse of Psalm 22 when he's on the cross, as Matthew 27, verse 46 records. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse of Psalm 22. He wanted people to read the rest of the psalm and understand that all of this was foretold by the psalmist. Uh, and David, of course, remember, wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before the birth of Christ. The important witness of these Old Testament scriptures is specifically mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to be base most of the rest of my points on 1 Corinthians 15, so you may want to turn there if you're following along. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? What we would call the Old Testament scriptures. Those are the ones that were written. The death and resurrection of Jesus was predicted not only by Jesus himself, but over a thousand years earlier in the Old Testament by David, by Isaiah, and also by Daniel in Daniel 9, and by Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Fifth, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many different groups of people at many different times. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many different groups of people at many different times. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, John 20, verse 1 tells us, then to Peter, then to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's my favorite account. It was so much fun to read when Jesus said, oh, what's, what's been going on? Oh, you haven't heard? And here, he, oh, yeah, this guy, well, we're not sure if it's true or not. And then Jesus says, oh, yeah, it's true. <clears throat> you should have figured that out by now. At any rate, uh, that's my favorite. And then to the 11 uh, 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 disciples on that Easter Sunday evening. According to Luke 24, 43, he even ate some fish while he was there. Uh, uh, proving that he had a real body and that he wasn't just a spirit. But Thomas wasn't with them at that time, if you remember. And he said, unless I see his hands in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And uh, I'm not proud of this, but I have to say, of all the disciples, I identify with Thomas. I mean, I want evidence, you know. I probably would have been like Thomas saying, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see those nail prints. I, I want evidence. So eight days later, Jesus appeared again and showed Thomas his hands. And uh, Thomas exclaimed, John 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. See, Thomas wasn't some easily swayed person. He needed solid evidence. So Jesus graciously gave it to him. And then Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 and 6, that Jesus was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have died. Now maybe some people could argue that, well, a few disciples just thought that Jesus appeared uh, to them. I will never forget my uh, high school world history class. The class was made up of 90% Jewish uh, students. And the teacher told us that Jesus was a charlatan and all of his disciples were schizophrenic. <laughs> I am not kidding you, and I was appalled. I was only 14 years old uh, at the time. Uh, I've got, what, Two granddaughters that are older than that. Wow, that's scary. And in those days, you know, you didn't really, it's not like today, you didn't really question the teacher in those days. Some of you might remember that. Uh, you didn't challenge him. But as maybe uh, almost certainly the only Christian in the class, I did challenge him on that point. And I was a pretty shy 
uh, student, but not when it came to that. And he basically had no evidence to back up his claim. No, the disciples weren't schizophrenic. They didn't imagine Jesus appearing. Jesus appeared many times during the 40 days before his ascension to heaven, and he appeared to 500 people at once. And most of these people, Paul says, were alive at the time that Paul was writing uh, 1 Corinthians, so people could actually, what, check with them. Jesus' resurrection actually happened, and it's a historical fact based on solid evidence, not just some nice story that some people made up after the fact. Well, what difference does it make that Christ's resurrection actually happened? That's the second question I want us to consider this morning. What difference does it make that Christ's resurrection actually happened? It makes all the difference in the world. I'd like us to continue to look briefly at portions of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul answers that very question. Paul first answers this question negatively in verses 12 to 19, and then positively in verses 20 to 58. He says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then four things are true. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then four things are true. First of all, Paul says in verse 14 that our preaching is empty or in vain. Our preaching is empty. All our preaching would be without any purpose. There would be no message to preach. Sadly, in some churches, some preachers don't actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet they still preach some message from their pulpits. I have no idea why anyone would want to do that. I got to tell you, if I didn't believe it was true, I'd be doing something else. I don't know. I'd probably be selling life insurance or something, you know, more profitable than, uh, than, than this for sure. Although I'm sure, you know, what, uh, you know, the salaries that this church is paying, I'm sure just would be comparable to something fantastic. Um, no, I'm, uh, of course, joking. Uh, I have no idea why anybody would want to do that. I just cannot understand it. Paul says if Christ's resurrection didn't actually happen, there would be no message to preach. There's no Christian message without Christ's resurrection. That's the first thing. Second, Paul says in verse 15 that if the resurrection didn't happen, then the apostles would all be liars. The apostles would all be liars. They would be false witnesses because they claimed that God raised Christ from the dead, but he really didn't. If they were false witnesses about this, then none of the rest of their teaching could be trusted either. Third, Paul says in verse 17 and also in verse 14, that if Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain since we are still in our sins. Our faith is in vain because we're still in our sins. Earlier in chapter 15, Paul beautifully expressed the heart of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. We already read these verses once, but let me read them once again. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins in our place on the cross. 
But the resurrection is God's testimony and his seal that Christ's sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. According to Romans 4, verse 25, it is Christ's death and resurrection that causes us to be declared righteous in his sight. If Christ were not raised, then the sacrifice of Christ would not have taken away our sins because the resurrection is the supreme evidence that his sacrifice was accepted. And finally, Paul says in verse 19, if Christ is not raised, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He explains further in verses 30 to 32 that we'd be most miserable because we would be giving up the pleasures of this life now and even suffering persecution sometimes in order to preach the gospel. If Christ isn't risen and there's no afterlife, then why not, as Paul says in verse 32, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why not just live life to the fullest now? In my own case, graduating from Princeton University, like many of my fellow graduates, I could have chosen to pursue a career that would have made a lot of money and enjoy many of the luxuries of this life. But as a young 20-year-old, I decided instead that I wanted to give my life to serve the Lord and tell people about him rather than simply making a lot of money. Now, I, I remember very vividly my parents originally were not very happy about my decision because I was on the pre-med track and uh, they figured I'd make a good living as a doctor. Thankfully, they did eventually come on board. That was 51 years ago, and may I say that I've never, ever regretted that decision, even for a moment. But if Christ were not raised, if the resurrection didn't happen, if this life is all that there is, then what a foolish decision I would have made. Same is true, of course, for countless missionaries and others. But since Christ did indeed rise from the dead, Paul next gives us three positive reasons why it matters. Look at the contrast between verses 19 and 20. It's one of my favorite contrasts in the whole Bible. Verse 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But verse 20 says, one of the greatest buts in the whole Bible. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says in verses 20 to 22 that since Christ rose from the dead, we who are believers in Christ will also rise from the dead. Since Christ rose from the dead, we who are believers in Christ will also rise from the dead. We already mentioned how the feast in Leviticus 23 presented 1,400 years before Christ prophesied of Christ's death and resurrection with first the Passover, the day that Christ was crucified, and then the feast of, of first fruits on the third day when Christ was raised. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Just as the feast of first fruits gave them the first taste of the harvest, so Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. 
you and I will have a new resurrection body just like his glorious body, according to Philippians 3 and verses 20 and 21. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. We have our citizenship not on earth, but in heaven. You know, when people die, and I realize there are all kinds of customs here. I'm not going to be critical of anyone else's uh, uh, custom, but some folks make a big deal about the body. They buy the most expensive casket possible, and so on and so forth. And again, I realize we can have a disagreement on this point, but for me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I already told you, I'm a little frugal, right? (laughs) So my body is a mess now, and it's going to get worse and worse, and when it's dead, it's going to be even worse. So why would anyone want to preserve my dead body? As I mentioned uh, when I was with you in uh, January, a former student and good uh, friend of mine, Mark Hazlett, uh, suffered a massive uh, stroke this uh, past November, November 3rd. His entire left side is paralyzed, but he's now able to communicate and speak, which is uh, a positive since I talked to you last. But his body is a mess. And humanly speaking, uh, apart from the Lord's intervention, which is always possible, but it doesn't look as if he's ever going to recover. But you know what? His faith is still strong. When I visited him yesterday, I read, I mean, shockingly, guess what I read? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, because that's where our hope is. And he believes that's where his hope is. Our hope isn't in this weak imperfect body that we have now. Not at all. As Christians, Mark, you, and I, if we've trusted in Christ, we know we're going to have a new resurrection body. And as Paul explains in most of the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, that this new resurrection body will be immortal and incorruptible. How do we know this? Because that's what Christ's resurrection body was like. And ours is patterned after his. So this life is not all that there is. The wrongs that you and I suffer here will be made right in the next life when you and I, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, will have new resurrection bodies. That's the basis of our hope. As Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Is that the hope you want? Or do you hope to get rich here on earth and then die where you can take none of those riches with you? Well, Paul puts this another way in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and then in uh, verses 54 to 57. He says that because Christ is raised from the dead, death itself is swallowed up in victory. Because Christ is raised from the dead, death itself is swallowed up in victory. Paul explains that the sting of death is sin. 
When Adam and Eve sinned, death entered into the world. But now because of Christ's resurrection, he has paid the price for our sin so that there will be no more death. Quoting from Isaiah 25, verse 8, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, that death is swallowed up in victory. Death itself will be defeated. And you and I, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, will have eternal life. That means that you and I don't need to fear death since this life is not the end of it all. Over the past uh, three years, uh, I don't know about you, but at least 25 people that I've known well has, have died. They've gone to be with the Lord. Uh, I remember about a year ago, almost exactly this time, I visited a former member of my Sunday school class in the hospital, May Anna Bateman, and though she was near death, she was rejoicing with me, not sad at all, because she knew that death wasn't the end. And she'd be with Jesus in heaven, and she'd be with her beloved husband, Earl. She died on Good Friday a year ago. Yes, death is a horrible thing, to be sure. But for the believer, Jesus' resurrection proves that he has conquered death. The last two lines of John Donne's beautiful sonnet, Death Be Not Proud, written over 400 years ago, in uh, around 1609, sums up this point nicely. He says, One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Amen to that. Amen. Well, finally, Paul concludes that because Christ is raised from the dead, you and I should be abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. Because Christ is raised from the dead, you and I should be abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. You know, many people work very hard in this life, but their work really accomplishes very little. They work hard to earn money, but as I've already said, they can't take that money with them to the grave. But you and I know that because of the resurrection of Christ, all that we do for the Lord will be useful and profitable. So Paul's concluding exhortation, and mine to you as well, is that we should never grow tired of doing the Lord's work, of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with our friends and neighbors, all those around us, or of demonstrating the Lord's love and kindness to those around us, because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Did the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happen? The evidence is incontrovertible that it did. Does it make any difference? It makes all the difference in the world. If you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged your sinfulness and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then I urge you to do it today. There is no more important decision than you can make than this. For those of us who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, that he died on the cross for our sins, it means that we will have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, 
new resurrection bodies in the life to come and a purpose in our lives now to serve the Lord with all of our being. Hallelujah. Christ is risen indeed. Let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, even unbelievers have to agree that the crucifixion certainly must have happened because it was so embarrassing. But Lord, your word clearly proclaims and all of the witnesses of that day clearly proclaim that the resurrection happened as well. And it was prophesied so many years in advance. Wasn't a surprise to you, Lord. And I thank you, Father, that because of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we too, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, will have new resurrection body and everlasting life. Lord, help us never to fear death. It is a fearsome thing, surely, especially for those who have no hope. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we realize, even as Paul said, to depart and be with Christ is far better. But Lord, while we're here, in whatever state we're in, and sometimes we can feel as if we're, uh, we're too old to do any good, Lord, but you haven't, you haven't told us that. And as long as we're here in this world right now, Father, help us again, to continue to accomplish your purposes, to be your witnesses, Lord, to be prayer warriors for one another, even if we can't so actively be involved in the battle. Help us, Father, to recognize that all that we do for you is going to last for eternity. Help us, Lord, to make that our f focus, Lord, whether young, uh, middle-aged, or old. Father, Thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us, Lord, to show that same love and forgiveness to those around us as we reflect the light of Christ and the love of Christ to all those around that they might too join in trusting in Christ as their Savior. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' precious name, with thanksgiving, amen.